Those very often brought to the faith some of the presuppositions of their religion. True, they very often misinterpreted and misunderstood because they came from very alien backgrounds and out of a corrupt world of paganism. But the remarkable thing is that they felt a mandate to apply the total word of the king to every area of life and thought. If Christ be king, he must be obeyed. It was that simple. In the second volume of my Institutes of Biblical Law, which we hope we will have printed within the year, I call attention to one facet of this. Abortion. The early church took a stand against abortion. Now to remember the facts of the first century, you need to realize the first, second, third centuries were very much like our own. Different from all other centuries in that they were like the 20th centuries dominated by big cities and urban civilization. We have to come to modern times to find a comparable urban emphasis in society. Moreover, it was a time of rapid humanism. The whole character of Rome was saturated with and became from humanism. The proverb of the day most common was, eat, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. All refers to that. Abortion was commonplace. The church very early began to deal with this fact. And it was their way of differentiating between the Christian and the humanist, the Christian came to say immediately. A Christian can have no part of abortion. If any of the Christians had been guilty of abortion, there was a severe penalty. Among the most common was that they could not partake of the Lord's table for seven years or ten years or for life. Now the figures of seven and ten are interesting because they are numbers of fools. In effect, they would say, for life to offend. In some cases, they actually did. They did so because they said in terms of the word of God it is murder and the death penalty we are not able to impose since we are not a civil order. But we want you to know what God's word has to say on this. If you truly are repentant, you will be our sister in Christ and our brother in Christ. But you will not partake of the table to indicate that you are living dead. But they did not stop there. Necessity 
these scriptures were saying that is laid upon me. Whoa. If I preach not or eat not the gospel. Abortion in those days was primitive. And as a result, many children were not aborted. They came to full term. And at that time in Rome, they were taken and abandoned under the bridges for wild dogs to kill them. And at different places in each of the cities, the babies were abandoned. The early church made a practice of going around nightly and collecting those babies, passing them around to members to be reared in the faith. This is one way the early church grew so phenomenally. Now, I cite that because I'm again trying to bring home the critical difference between biblical faith and humanism. Each has a different area of necessity. Does the Christian today say, where the word of God is concerned, necessity is laid upon me? Or does he say it to the IRS? You see, the point is very important. We can technically agree with every article of the Confession and Catechism. But if it is not a matter of necessity, and if the Word of God from beginning to end is not a necessity laid upon us, then we are human. Now, at times, it's very easy to be a humanist. Most of the time, in fact. Because the burdens are very light upon us then. In humanism, every man is his own God. Every man decides for himself what is good and what is evil. He approaches the world then with a smorgasbord attitude. Now, I enjoy a smorgasbord. And my wife and I, we find a good, sweet, smorgasbord sport somewhere, delight in going, because to have every kind of uh, food spread out before us, and to be able to go up and down the table and choose, it's a real delight. But we cannot approach the Word of God with a smorgasbord of fashion. We cannot say, here I choose, and here I do not. Because necessity is laid upon us. I know that very early when our work began to skyrocket and its impact, we relocated because in a day of inflation we thought there had to be a place where our group as a Group dependent upon the gifts of God's people could 
be a better steward of bodies. In an urban center, inflation is quite rampant. So we moved up to Calaveras County. Most of you have no doubt heard of Mark Twain's famous story, The Jumping Frog of Calaveras County. In the heart of the old motherlode gold country, up in the mountains north of the center. A very lovely setting and an area where inflation is dramatically less than in the rest of the country. Thus we are able to make better use of the money given to us. But we also found that because of the growth of the influence of our work, we had a continual stream of students and of ministers and of people coming up there. And the first year, uh, my wife Dorothy uh, had served over 300 meals, to, uh, 800 meals to ministers when I stopped counting. And at one point, he raised the question, do I have to do it? And we both sat down and thought about it. And then decided, yes. It's a part of the necessity laid upon us. Now that's a very mild and simple thing. But today, men who feel necessity laid upon them, as Levi Whitner in Ohio went to jail for his faith, because he had a Christian school, he said that he, the pastor of a small congregation, could not do so. Unless Dorolov, who's been to jail twice, and countless others who've been to jail, they feel necessity laid upon them. And they do not do so as they make their resistance in a spirit, spirit of disobedience, but a spirit of obedience. Of obedience to Christ as well. Now, one of the characteristic marks of lordship or sovereignty is the law-making power. He who makes the law is the sovereign or the Lord. And who makes that laws? Whom do we obey? Who lays necessity upon us? God in his word or all law is simply enacted morality or procedures for the enactment or enforcement of morality. Every law says, Thou shalt not. Every law is a moral matter. And all morality is an aspect of theology. This is why every modern state seizes this area above all else. You know that when the Puritans came here in all colonies, they had a problem. They all wanted the word of God as well. And the king said, oh no. 
I am your Lord. You have my love and none other. And so they had to use God's law in the jury room without honoring the king's law outside. Alfred. When John Eliot, the great missionary to the Indians in New England, began his work, Cromwell soon came to power. And John Eliot said, I will do now that which God requires of me. And he organized the Indian villages the plain Indians, as they were called, in terms of scripture. He taught every Indian to be an elder in his home. For every ten elders, in terms of Deuteronomy 1, there was to be an elder, or a captain, or a presbyter, or a bishop over ten elders. Both in city government, among the Indians, and the faithful. And over every ten, an elder over fifty, an elder over a hundred, or an elder over a thousand, an elder over ten thousand. And they were governed by the word of God. He wrote a book on that, the Christian Commonwealth. And when Charles II returned to the throne, one of his first acts was to order that all copies of that book be burned by the public hand. It is a rare book now. We plan in about a year to reprint it. It's one of the great evidences of what the faith of our forefathers in this country was. But they saw all of life under the necessity of gospel. But today we have a different concept of necessity. A state imposed necessity. And Caesar acts law. But a significant development has taken place in this country since 1950. According to John Whitehead in his book The Separation Illusion on the First Amendment, about 1952, the U.S. Supreme Court decided that Christianity and the churches were dead. It has since then proceeded very rapidly to eliminate every trace of Christianity from the United States, as after several states. But in the past few years, something that began about the same time has been shaking them up. It has been the rise of the Christian school movement. Now, the Christian school movement has grown to a degree that very few appreciate. No one knows how many people there are in the Christian school movement. No statistics are obtainable. In many states, 
Why in the state convention of Christian schools they have to <coughs> allow people only to pass in terms of the registration card? Because state officials try to get in to find out how many schools there are and how many children they have. State statistics about the number of children in state schools again are dishonest. We found that out dramatically in Southern California after Proposition 13 passed. Two school teachers in a couple of the better schools in Los Angeles went to the Herald Examiner and told reporters, we are tired of marking as present non-existent people whose names have been added to the school roll for one purpose, to collect state funds. They were promptly transferred to ghetto schools. The Herald Examiner persisted with the story, and it was finally revealed that at least three million dollars had been collected for non-existent peoples. Nothing was done to those schools, although the state asked that the money be refunded after the matter became so public. But multiply that across the country in your cities, and there is every reason to believe it exists across the United States, and you have an idea as to how much money is being put out for state education. Ninety billion dollars this school year. Ninety billion. A Christian school movement controls between 50 and 15 and 30 percent of the children of the United States. No one knows exactly how much, but somewhere between 15 and 30 percent. New schools are being created every day so that by the end of this century, according to their own prognostication, Public schools will be virtually finished. On top of that, Nation's Business in an editorial February of this year, 1980, actually said in the editorial that by the end of this decade, the public school could be a minor fact on the educational scene. The title of it was Doomsday for Public Education. We may actually have a ballot measure in California this fall to abolish the public schools. Now, just stop and think for a moment what this means. It means that in terms of the present direction of things, by the end of this century, virtually every child in the United States will go to the school where they will be taught the Bible, taught to believe it from cover to cover. Now think what that will do for this country. Nobody knows better than the humanists what has happened, and they are quite they feel they are under attack. One recent issue of the Humanist 
was dedicated to the frightening assault by Bible believers on humanism. The homosexual community in San Francisco feels threatened by us. They passed the gay rights ordinance. Sad to say, almost every church and Christian school in the San Francisco area submitted to it. Which meant actually parent homosexuals for their Christian schools. Charles McElhaney, the pastor of the Little Orthodox Presbyterian Church, needed an organist and advertised in school music and got one who claimed to believe the Bible from cover to cover and three weeks later he found out he was a homosexual. He fired and he was promptly taken to court. A couple of weeks ago the judge ruled in favor of Charles McLean. The homosexual community is going to appeal according to the latest work of the attorney was John Whitehead. Now, there is an extensive homosexual press in San Francisco. Very crazy. The in thing, by the way, with the homosexual community today is bestiality. And they openly advertise it and show pictures illustrating what they are. Charles McElhaney brought me a sheet of these publications. And the interesting thing to which he called my attention was these people feel threatened. Threatened. By what? By the believers. The believers. Because the people who take the word of God seriously are on the march. They feel that unless they destroy the Bible-believing community, they will be wiped out. And they're right. If we had a comparable militancy on our side as they have, and they are ready to fight for their this country tomorrow would see an end to all kinds of abominations. But the issue is very real. In the past three and a half years under the present administration, we have seen a tremendous assault on the Christian faith. The IRS has been out to destroy Christian schools and churches. Its position is, and this was sneaked into the law in 1952, a little by little, grown to churches. You cannot be a church until you apply to the IRS and they establish you. Now that's a violation of the First Amendment. The IRS says, you're not a church unless we say you are, and we approve you and declare your tax exempt because of the church. That's an establishment of religion. In one current case, they demanded that a church submit samples of its sermons 
for so many Sundays, a written sermon for each Sunday, all financial records, and so on. One reformed congregation in Wisconsin was recently taken to court. It's a church that's been there for some years. For the demand that they turn over all the windows. No reason given. They demand the right to investigate. At the same time, you can pick up magazines that advertise this group, the Church of Universal Rights, Church of Individual Liberty, whereby you can incorporate and become a minister. You pay $25 or $20, I don't know the exact amount, and you can become a minister, a priest, a rabbi, pay a little more, you can become a bishop or a cardinal. And you can declare your income is church income and your house is your church. You tax exempt. The IRS supposedly went after this outfit, but they went after it in a way I've never seen them do with others. They lost the case and didn't show any enthusiasm about carrying it to a higher court. One broker friend told me that he knew of 5,000 such churches in the San Diego area. Why is the IRS demanding the freedom to go after legitimate churches and not these? We are giving the example of Jim Jones and the People's Church. We need legislation, people say, to prevent abuses like that. But Jim Jones had a state church. He was collecting federal and state funds. He was delivering, just in the Bay Area, 25,000 votes to the Democratic machine and getting all kinds of favors. He could not be prosecuted for all the laws that his doomed squad were perpetrating upon people who tried to break with him. He was drawing aid to dependent children by putting, breaking up families in his group and putting the children with one or two people in large dormitory cells. That's why he had all those children in the And it was not until a New York magazine blew the whistle on his lawlessness that the politicians had to run for something. He was one of them. He was working, incidentally, just before he ended with Rosalind Carter to tell Castro that he was a monster. Why no prosecution of the concern? Members who are savagely beaten, if they try to rebel or break away, will go to law enforcement people and only have their business reported to film and
to attempt to deal with the church that are fallen. Attempts to control the church's ministry shows the Sunday school. Nursery, child care facilities during the week for working mothers in the church and the like. Do you know that in a couple of states there have been prosecution of churches because of their nursery? Women's meetings during the midweek, mothers taking their turns during for the children's church nursery, that was against the child's care law, and had to have a license for that, they were told. We were trying to get a law prohibiting such interference with the church's ministry to children in California. Failed by one to come out of It has been steeped into the law books in many states to be a file when they feel I could go down the line to cite the types of control that are envisioned for churches. I mentioned in the previous hour, that of pastoral counseling. The list of this go back to Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud said that it would be useless for scientists to try to disprove religion. As long as men feel guilt, he said, they will feel the need for a savior. Very that at the heart of physical faith is the doctrine of the atonement. And he said, what we must do in order to destroy the power of religion over mankind is to convert the problem of guilt from a religious problem to a medical problem. This is the meaning of a mental health this is why there is a test today to turn the ministry into a branch of psychiatry and to compel psychiatric and psychological training and licensing. But what we have to say is that ours is the true establishment. Not only matters of guilt, the matters of education, of politics, of economics, of all things, under God's word, and under the authority of Christ as king. The first and basic commandment of economics is, Thou shalt not steal. Now we have a system of economics that is based on theft. Because we have fiat money. Let's consider the meaning of that. We have fiat money, man-made money, instead of gold and silver. The Bible says, just wait, and just measure shall you have. Wait in the Bible has reference 
from the authority of God and His Word. The very beginning of the history. The U.S. Supreme Court made it clear under Vincent, then Chief Justice, that there was no word beyond the cross. To give a law to the cross, there is the ultimate word. And in every area of our life today, we have this insistence on the humanistic fiat. And of course, the essence of modernism is to submit to this humanistic fiat. To say it is the word of man and the needs of man that must lay necessity upon us. What governs the legislation today and human action generally? Human need. So that Congress says, as it looks at the human situation, necessity is laid upon us to do so and so. The necessity is man-made and man-ordained. Not until we return to the divine God and can say necessity is laid upon me by the Lord as we return to the face of our Father. Remember this. We can, and I believe must have, separation of church and state. But we can never have separation of religion and the state. The state and the school, the family, the vocation, the arts and sciences, all have an obligation to be under the law, just as much as the church. Now that's what Germanism is about. And that's what the Bible is about. It says there is a necessity laid upon us not only in the church, but in every area of life by God and His Word. But we must give heed to that necessity so that we might be indeed faithful I said in the previous hour that we are to all. But when we go to war with Christ our King, we cannot lose. If we go to war with Saul's armor, as had you, we are sure of we go to war in terms of the uncompromising work of God, he said. I like the episode that occurred in New Hampshire when one pastor was on trial and he was told that he opened his Christian school. On the first day of September, the school was scheduled. They would arrest him and take him to jail. 
and there are buses parked up and down the street. Church buses and Christian school buses with banners on the side saying, Jesus is Lord. And the judges are very nervous and jittery. They don't want to be in public eye that way. They're not used to being faced with such conviction. And find it most distressing. We are told in scripture that this is the victory which overcomes the world, even our faith. And overcome the shadow. If we can say that the things of old necessity is laid on. Woe be it unto me if I preach not the gospel and stand in terms of the gospel. If we see it all times, our judge, not as the local court, nor the IRS, nor Jimmy Carter, but one who is Lord over them as well as us, even Jesus Christ. Right, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of thy grace and mercy has called us to be thy people, and has given us such great and glorious prophecies in thy word. Give us faith to stand and to give a good witness. To set forth God's plain King of Kings and Lord of Lords, before kings and governments. And to know that thou wilt give us the word to speak in thy appointed time. We pray for thy blessing upon thee, thy state. We thank thee that they have made them a good information. Have separated themselves from unbelief. Have committed themselves unto thy word in thy sovereign rule. Bless and prosper them who teach Protect them by thy grace and cause thy faith to shine upon them. Amen.